Going back a few weeks, we have been making our way through the Sermon on the Mount, and it's important to recognize this context and perhaps helpful to know what the early church thought about this context. We see as Jesus begins his public ministry that he goes about healing in Galilee and lots of crowds gathered to him. And then at the beginning of chapter 5, it says, Seeing the crowds, he went up the mountain. Uh, The crowds don't actually follow him. Uh, It says his disciples followed him up the mountain, and then he sat down and started teaching. And this is what we call the Sermon on the Mount. And what the church fathers tell us about these details is that uh, there's a kind of hierarchy in Revelation, that there is the whole of humanity the people that Christ came to save. From these, he he chooses certain persons to be closer to him, to hear the teaching, to meditate on it, and then to bring it back uh, to the crowds. And we see this in the Acts of the Apostles when the apostles appoint deacons. They say it's important for us to focus on prayer and the preaching of the word. And I I want you to remember this point about prayer, being close to the Lord, listening to the Lord, to discern the signs of the times, to discern what it is that God is saying to us. But this creates, as I say, something that's uncomfortable for us who are used to living in what we hope is an egalitarian democracy. We have a kind of hierarchy by Christ's own choice. We have certain persons who are called to be close to him, uh, and then they bring this teaching to the rest of the world. Now, the relationship between the law and the gospel... That's end of introduction. This is an issue, another one that goes back to the time of the apostles. The first truly major dispute in the early church concerned the extent to which the Gentiles, non-Jewish converts, were bound by the law of Moses, especially its requirement of circumcision. And actually, these questions have continued to dog us into the modern era, taking different guises. Uh, Obviously, today, most Christians don't feel much bound by the Mosaic law. We happily eat pork and shellfish, or maybe shellfish. Some people don't like shellfish, I suppose. We don't observe the Sabbath, and so on. And so it would seem that, well, the observation of the law is ended. And there are various scriptural passages that we can trot out to substantiate this view. St. Paul actually says that Christ is the end of the law. So it sounds from this perspective that the time of the law is over. But then, on the other hand, what do we make of our Lord's teaching this morning? Do not think I have come to abolish the law. And we should ponder the following. Whoever breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do so will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. So it would also seem that we are still bound to the law in some sense. And so how does the church navigate this? First, we should notice that our Lord does not say that he has come to reinstate the law as if it weren't being carried out, or that he was there to ensure that it was correctly implemented. Rather, he himself, he says, is the fulfillment in in some way. And we should understand St. Paul saying in this same manner, when he says that Christ is the end of the law, he means this in the sense of a summing up of all that went before, the key that makes sense of all of the provisions of the law, the goal of the law. And so the law's goal, the end of the law, was to prepare for Christ. 
to prepare for the divine life that he brought us through his death and the gift of the Holy Spirit. And it is precisely the Holy Spirit who then allows us finally to understand the full meaning of the law, why it's there, what it is teaching us about ourselves and about God. The gift of the law on Mount Sinai should therefore be seen, uh, as should all the scriptures actually, in a twofold way. On the one hand, we have the literal and historical understanding of what the law was doing. And then we have, and, and that's something that happened and is, is perhaps uh, past in one sense for us as Christians. But then there's also the spiritual meaning, which uh, perseveres through time. So literally and historically, let's start with that one. The law came at a certain time, and it was the means by which God prepared his chosen people, first to be a people, but then to prepare them to receive his son, the Messiah. And so the, the law teaches right behavior, love of God and neighbor, love of God's creatures, and of his actions in history. Yet it was also something provisional, as St. Paul states in various places, and our Lord corroborates. So, for example, in on one sense, Noah and Enoch and Abraham and others were considered just before God, before there was any law. And in some cases, Moses legislated pragmatically for diminished expectations uh, in, in this time of waiting, as when he permitted divorce, as we hear our Lord say elsewhere. I'll return to that in a moment. There is also, though, and more importantly, the spiritual meaning of the law, which is a gift to us through baptism and the cultivation of a spiritual life in the Holy Spirit, a life of prayer. Christ is helping to point the way to this spiritual reading this morning. So he says, you've heard it said, you shall not kill, right out of Leviticus and Deuteronomy. And of course, this is a fundamental rule of any society that hopes to last for more than a generation. Just on a practical level, solving problems by ending someone else's life, uh, this is a dangerous way to live. But our Lord shows us something deeper in this commandment. This is something that comes from God. It's not just a pragmatic decision on our parts. That killing and actually even being angry, harboring anger with someone else, uh, trying to dominate others by our anger or by ridicule, this means on a spiritual level, we are consenting to stifle life in others, and as such, we will be held to account for that. And not only is this detrimental to our own well-being to act this way, and it's detrimental to the well-being of others, it's not how God acts. And so, by acting in this way, by harboring anger, by ridiculing others, we efface in ourselves, we rub out the likeness of God, that is the gift that we received in baptism, that Christ came to restore. And so again, the law certainly retains its force. You should not kill. But it means so much more than that, and we are meant to hear how it opens into something that's more than just a compliance with a set of rules. And in fact, once we begin to live truly the life of the Spirit, it is possible that the Church's holy men and women can discern that certain provisions of the law actually have to be left to one side uh, if the full spiritual meaning is to emerge. And again, our, our Lord indicated this himself 
showed how this is done. He said that there was one understanding of marriage in the beginning and then another under the law, and that the understanding that was held under the law was a concession. It was a concession to hardness of heart, and perhaps we might add to a certain weakness for opportunism that is in our hearts and one that under the law favored men. But I phrase this as being about understanding marriage rather than about rules, which we certainly need again. We're not abolishing the law. We're looking for the true meaning of it. This is because as this issue continues to surface over recent decades from time to time, uh, whether disciplines regarding divorced and remarried Catholics ought to be relaxed, we need to take stock of this with true understanding. And I would say it's this dispute, this question, is not likely to have a satisfactory resolution without us understanding how Christ fulfilled the law, without Catholics and other Christians taking the necessary time in prayer, accompanying the Lord up the mountain, contemplating the image and likeness that we had to God in the beginning and that Christ has restored, and understanding with, with real sobriety what sin does to this likeness. So for true understanding to occur, uh, our habit, again, as egalitarian democratic thinkers, as I said, is to sort of see what a lot of people think and take an average of something. Uh, but this is not why Christ was sent, so that we could just take polls of, of what people think. Rather, he's coming to change our understanding, deepen it, conform our minds to the truth that God has set up so that we can have true understanding. Uh, but this is work that requires us to spend this time with the Lord. It's not something that will come, again, simply by uh, imagining that we can follow whatever uh, understanding we would like it to be. So for a true understanding, we must seek more than simple healing, as did the crowds throughout Galilee. We have to become real disciples, and with the disciples, as I said, follow the Lord up the mountain and immerse ourselves in his saving doctrine, that we might truly be new evangelizers and not rationalizers who seek the favor of the culture and the wisdom of the age rather than the kingdom of heaven.